What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Masters of Community podcast. My name is David Spinks, founder of CMX and VP of Community at Bevy. Each week, I bring you an expert who will help you take your community to the next level. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey everyone, I just want to give you a quick heads up that my new book, The Business of Belonging, How to Make Community Your Competitive Advantage, is now available anywhere where you can buy books on Amazon and any bookstore. It is the complete collection of everything I've learned from the last 13 years and how to build community for your business and all of the frameworks and models that the CMX team has developed to teach businesses how to do this work. It's all in here. I really appreciate all your support. You can go and order it now. Today's interview is with Alex Blanton, who's a senior community program manager at Microsoft, where he's been working for over 23 years, an incredible run, and basically was one of the first people to build community at Microsoft, has run many different community programs there, all focused internally for employees. So a lot of community programs focus on external audiences like customers. Alex is fully focused internally on employees, specifically technical employees, and has done incredible work building up many different community programs over those 23 years and shares his story, how he got into community, how he built up these community programs, and shares a ton of advice for other companies out there who are trying to figure out how to build better community internally for your staff, for your employees especially as a lot of companies are going fully remote now. Everyone's trying to figure out how do we build more engagement amongst our staff and keep people connected to each other, even though they don't have an office or hallways to have spontaneous conversations. So you're going to get a ton out of this one on how to build community internally for your companies. Let's dive in. All right, Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Very excited for our chat. You are one of the few people in the world of community building who's been doing this work professionally for a very long time. And you have a lot of deep expertise, specifically in the area of internal technical communities. And we were just talking, I love when someone has deep expertise in one specific area because you get to go really deep into the tactics and into the weeds. So I have a feeling we're going to run out of time and I'm going to want to ask more questions than what we have in the next hour. But very excited to have you here. Yeah, it should be great. I'm looking forward to it. So why don't we kick off and just tell people about your experience? How did you get into the world of community? You've been at Microsoft for over 23 years now, which is wild on its own. And you started off in journalism and in editorial work and then and then made your way into community. So tell us a little bit about your journey. Yeah, it's been a long time at Microsoft, and I contracted for three years before that, so it's been a really long time. But yeah, I started at Microsoft on Encarta Encyclopedia, back when CD-ROM encyclopedias were something. Mm-hmm. But then when the internet came up, I really saw that, you know, the <laughs> I started feeling like a middleman, essentially, in terms of information, because people were just, you know, I was starting to do my research on the internet. So I had worked for a book publisher before. And so I moved over and worked at um, Microsoft Press for a few years. And then then I worked. One of the great things about Microsoft is there's so many different career paths you can take. So after four years at Press, I went to a marketing group uh, that focused on Office. And then after a couple of years there, I went to a learning and development group. And that's where I really started getting into community as an element of our learning and development programs. Was the community program something that existed already or did you have to build that up? No, it didn't. And I mean, this was, you know, I joined that group in 2006, and I certainly wasn't aware of community management as a field. But I had this, like, amazing insight this one day. I I really actually even remember where I was when I reread this article. Have you read this article by Malcolm Gladwell called The Six Degrees of Lois Weisberg? No. Okay, David, you have to, after this is over, go and read that article. I think you'd really appreciate it. It's about this. He wrote in 1999 or 2000 for the New Yorker. And it's about this woman in Chicago who her superpower was connecting people. And so she sort of overlapped into all these different fields. You know, she knew people in finance and municipal government and nonprofit world. And she was the person you went to if you needed to find the person to get something done, you know, and that was sort of her thing. She existed in between all of these things. And and I remember when I was in this L&D organization and I reread this article for some reason in about 2006 and I thought, 
that could be me. That could be me at Microsoft because I've been there about 10 years or something at that time. I, I had a good network, but I thought I'm actually not a super technical person. So I was trying to think, what's the additional value I bring? And I think that really spoke to me, the power of being able to connect people who needed information, wanted information, were looking for something. Because even within a organization like Microsoft, it's hard sometimes to find folks, you know, you know, work is going on, but who's doing it? Who's doing the best work there? How do you reach them? Mm. So I started thinking about how do you apply that concept to learning and development work? And I started with this, I was focused on content publishers at the time. And so I tried to do it with content publishers, but it didn't really work. And since then, I've reflected on why it didn't work. And I think because content publishers at Microsoft, at least at the time, didn't really view themselves as content publishers. They viewed themselves as attached to the product group they worked in. So it didn't really, you know, there's an element of community where you have these commonalities with the other people in the community. Sure, like a shared identity. Shared identity, exactly. And I don't think that the content publishers had that shared identity. So although I tried some things, they didn't really work. It was only a few years later when I got the opportunity to work on a design thinking community that that really came into play because that community was essentially a additional feature of one of our learning and development initiatives, which was a, a class on design thinking, a two-day class that um, individual business groups would go through as a team. So there's like power in a team going through this experience. Right. And so people had gone through that. They were alumni of the class. They had that shared identity and that history of that content. And then they're applying those job those ideas back on the job. And so then what I took on was building a community from scratch of the alumni of the class. Got it. And was that an online community? It was kind of like a forum? We're using tools that Microsoft has essentially. So it's nothing fancy. You know, honestly, it's really, we have a strong email culture. So a lot of it is email, but also I don't know what the program we were using at the time was, but like Teams calls or Skype calls and in-person gatherings as well for this community. So we would bring people together to talk about some of the innovations they were making back on the job after they had taken the class so that different alumni from different cohorts could learn what other people were doing and maybe adopt some of those approaches and people who were building tools that could align with what they learned in the class could share those tools with other people. So I was doing all of this sort of instinctively in some way. And then I read this report from Corp U that was titled something like The Emerging Role of the Community Manager. That was about 2010 or 2011. And it was like a light bulb went off in my mind because I, I thought, this is what I'm doing. Someone has defined <laughs> what this job is, you know? And that was, I think, where I really started to feel like community management is my calling. That's amazing. Yeah, I was right around the time that I started working in the space was 2008. And I remember that it wasn't a thing back then. It just, you know, people were doing it, but they didn't know about each other yet. (laughs) And, and it wasn't a defined role. It felt like there were a lot of us that just organically kind of discovered this opportunity of, wait, I can be connecting people for a business. And just started doing it without really knowing anything about it becoming a career or an industry. That's exactly right. That's how I felt. I felt like when I read that report, I thought, wow, there's, there must be other people doing this because there's <laughs> yeah. enough that they researched it and wrote a report. But it just spoke to me. You know, it spoke to me as the kind of thing I enjoy doing, what I think I'm good at. Yeah. And so walk me through from there, or even in those early days we hear from a lot of community teams, especially on the people I've spoken to on this podcast who have been in the industry for a long time, the kind of uphill battle that they had to fight to get buy-in to be able to do this work internally. Did you face those kinds of obstacles or was it relatively easy for you to get buy-in from your higher-ups to, to be able to do this kind of work? You know, actually, it was not difficult. I think Part of that was where I was situated in the organization. I was in a learning and development organization that was trying to think about getting well beyond training as a way of improving team performance and behavior. And community was one of the directions that we could go. And in one of the that early effort around design thinking, I was able to partner with a guy named Michael Alcock, who 
at the time was running a company-wide engineering forum and also doing some initial thinking into communities. So he was kind of sort of cleared the decks in a lot of way in terms of sort of getting the buy-in from the management about the direction we were going. And then I, he and I would think through how do we execute on it. Mm. And I had a great manager at the time. So I didn't work directly for Michael, but I had a great manager named Suzanne Sawinska, who also was really great about sponsoring these kinds of efforts. Mm-hmm. It was not that challenging to get the executive buy-in. I would say what was challenging was not really knowing what to do <laughs> and figuring <laughs> right. that out. Right, right. Which is in some ways we hope is what we're focusing on is figuring out how to actually build community, not just trying to get people to give us the permission to build community, but right. so is the case. What were the objectives that you were committed to achieving or measuring against at that time to know that this is having an impact for Microsoft? Oh boy, so you're asking me to, it's been so long since then, how did we (laughs) define it? So, I mean, I think with the design thinking community, a lot of that was, you know, anytime you develop a learning intervention, your big challenge is understanding whether the time spent in the classroom actually has an impact back on the job. And the community could play a part in that because it gave us a mechanism to check back in with these teams that had gone through the training to understand were they implementing these approaches? Mm. Did they feel like they were successful? And it was hard for us to measure the success directly, but if they had particular measures for their business and those measures improved after they adopted the new approaches, then we felt like the entire initiative was successful or on the road to success. And, you know, I always feel like community should, at least in my context, sort of support the organizational goals and not necessarily be a goal in itself. So in that context, I really viewed the community as a tactic and a way for us to get out and talk with people after the class to learn what they did and, and a venue to allow them to turn around and share what they knew back with everyone else and hopefully spread those innovations throughout. So I mean, I also always look at one aspect of community success, if you can get people actively participating and giving back to the community. And that was the case then with the design thinking community. It's certainly something that I look at now with the machine learning community that I manage. Yeah. And whether we're having people participate actively and adding value back in. Yeah. And so you went on from there to eventually work on many different kinds of communities within Microsoft, the TCN communities program, and today the machine learning community. How has your focus evolved over that time in, the, in terms of the types of communities that you've been focused on building? Sure. So that work on the design thinking community then led to uh, being asked to manage this program called Technical Community Network, which is a set of about 10 communities on topics like storage and performance, programming languages. And that was a more of a program management job. I wasn't getting deep into any individual community. So we had leadership teams for each community and a cadence of events. And so I managed sort of the overall program, but each community ran itself essentially. And al- along with that, I developed this internal community consulting gig, I guess. I wasn't, it was part of my job. I wasn't paid separately for it, but where I would go out and talk with community owners or aspiring community owners and help them understand what was involved in uh, running a community and giving them a framework and allowing them to evaluate their their programs. And then the the TCN program, actually the organization it was part of was dissolved. So the program disappeared. The program was doing very well on its own, but, you know, sometimes in a big company, these things happen. And I, I had, we had recently added the machine learning community as a our newest community as part of the network and the CVP who was the executive sponsor really felt like community could be a great tool for helping Microsoft employees learn about machine learning and skill up in that area. So this was 2014. And although that was only seven years ago, you know, machine learning and AI were sort of much more in the research realm than the product application realm at that point. So anyway, when the the program was dissolved as part of this larger group sort of reorganization, he said, why don't you come over here and uh, dive deep into ML? And I didn't really know anything about machine learning, but I knew about community. And so that's when I went over and basically, we didn't quite start from scratch. There was a distribution group with about 800 members 
for machine learning, but turning that into a community that had sort of overall objectives and a reliable cadence and everything that goes along with the community, that was where I focused on. Now we have about 7,500 members, which is probably small if you compare to some of these huge external communities, but it is the second largest technical community within Microsoft, uh, just after the Azure community, which is a bit larger. Well, internal communities for a company like Microsoft, (laughs) which is the size of a small city, (laughs) are actually pretty substantial on their own. (laughs) That's wild. It's incredible to see kind of how you've navigated through different programs and really built out different kinds of community programs. So you've been at Microsoft for 23 years. That's a wild run. Did, did you, when you look back at that now, are you surprised that you've been there that long? I'm absolutely surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like the reason I got a job as a contractor in the first place was because Encarta was looking for people or someone to edit a series of articles on American writers. And I had majored in American literature. And I had a friend who I knew from back in Connecticut, and she was working at Microsoft. She said, you should go interview there. So I interviewed and got the job. And like, <laughs> I didn't even know the difference between a Mac and a PC when I interviewed at <laughs> Microsoft. And like I said, I'm not super technical. So I'm very surprised, you know, but it's a really great place to work. And I've been able to find jobs where I think my more uh, people-oriented approach adds value um, in a very technical environment. Mm. That's cool. So you're going to have another 23 years? We'll see. We'll see. (laughs) That's cool. And what is the focus for you today with the machine learning program, with the machine learning community? What what is the objective that you're working toward now? Do you feel like you have a clear idea of the business impact? Yeah. So machine learning is really important to Microsoft overall, right? It's being AI and ML are being built into probably all of the products at this point. It's a very fast-moving field, right? And when we started the community in 2014, there were actually very few even formal programs for learning. So some of our initial efforts were around actual sort of lightweight classes that we would build and, and try to teach people because there, wasn't, there weren't that many options. Now there's a lot more learning you can do and people are coming in with degrees and and all of that. And so with the community, we try to focus on connecting people around the company because innovations are happening so quickly in so many different places. So the the community, a lot of what we do is focused around uh, questions and answers. So those are technical questions usually both within engineering and also from our field organizations who are talking with customers. And so they need to get quick answers. They need to know what they're talking about when they're talking to customers. So connecting them back with engineering is really important. And then we hold a lot of, we hold two big conferences a year called the Machine Learning AI and Data Science Conference. I spend a lot of time on that. And then we also hold community events throughout the year to allow people to share what they know and and, uh, learn from one another and stay on top of what's happening. And so really, I view us as trying to accelerate the spread of information throughout a large organization, and also bringing out that tacit or implicit knowledge and expertise that's in the company Mm -hmm. and giving it a place to become more explicit or tangible, right? Uh, So when we do the conference, we have 100 plus sessions, and obviously each session should be useful and valuable in and of itself, but also even the act of having all of those out there that for people to see the agenda and see who's working on whatever, GPT-3 or this or that, that's valuable. And even the process by which we run the conference, because it's a peer-reviewed conference, so a lot of the people who are proposal reviewers take part because you know, if you're interested in natural language processing, you can review 10 proposals on NLP. And so you're helping the conference, but you're also helping yourself because you're learning about projects that are happening. Mm-hmm. And it's not uncommon that a reviewer will reach out to me and say, hey, can you introduce me to the people who did this proposal? Because I'd like to talk with them. Our reviewing process is anonymous, so they don't really often want to break the anonymity of the actual review, but they want to be introduced. So. I don't know if that answers your question, but we're, we're essentially trying to make people be able to find information a lot more quickly and and learn what they need to learn. You know, mm-hmm. they may they'll have to invest a lot more time to learn these things, but even to kind of discover 
what is it I should be learning? And that can change, you know, in 18 months, that can change dramatically. Right. So it sounds like making employees more efficient and more successful at doing their job, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Are there metrics that you track to be able to kind of tell you if you're successful in that regard? We have a bunch of different things we track. I don't think it's it's perfect. Um, you, you may have advice for me on how we can improve it. <laughs> you kidding me? You don't have a perfect system for measuring the value of community? <laughs> Surprising, I know. <laughs> but, you know, with, with the learning sessions, you know, we'll track, obviously, attendance. We'll track satisfaction, whether people thought it was an effective use of time, uh, whether they would recommend the community to other people. I pay a lot of attention to that because we don't charge people for these events, but, you know, they're investing their time. And if they're willing to ask other people to invest their time, then I think it shows some value. We look at repeat attendance for the same reason. You know, if people come back to the community and spend time there, we think that shows that whatever, we're not necessarily sure which value they're getting, but they should be getting value. Participation, obviously. So with the conference, I'm trying to get 10% of the attendance Whatever the number of attendees is, about 10% of that number should be volunteers because it's a community-driven conference. And so we want to have people actively involved in, in making it happen. With the questions and answers, we'll obviously measure like how many questions are asked, what percentage are answered, pay a lot of attention to the median time to answer. So how quickly does that answer come? Right. Uh, we're a worldwide community, and so we have people asking questions all times of the day, obviously. Mm-hmm. So that's something that look at. So it's sort of a variety of things. There is a community health index that's been iterated on a couple of times. I mean, those can be a little bit dangerous, right? Because it just depends on what goes into it. But I think it can be useful if you at least baseline. You don't pay too much attention to the raw number, but if it's going up or down and you can investigate the components. You see see trends. Yeah, yeah. Did you develop that health index yourself or did you use something like the sense of community index? I didn't develop it. The the machine learning community is part of a broader community program within Microsoft called the Worldwide Community Program. And mm-hmm. so we have a set of technical community. There's about 100 communities. Some of them are technical, wow. like the Azure is, is, is another technical community. But there's also role-based communities, so based on people's roles, and industry-based communities, so oil and gas or financial services or healthcare type of communities. And so, and they have, the, there's a community program team. And so they do work that spans all the communities. And hmm. the machine learning community, when I started it, was an independent community. And then in like 2015, 2016, I faced a decision do I want to bring it into this broader program and lose a little bit of my autonomy, but gain a lot of efficiencies by taking advantage of their measurement system and these kinds of things? Or do I want to try to run this thing on my own right. forever? And I thought it would be a better both in the moment because I, w- I would gain more than I lost by joining. And also, eventually when I leave, right, right, the succession plan will be a lot better when it's part of this broader program than if it's sort of tied individually to me. Right. 23 years from now. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. Where, where, I'm curious where that community program rolls up to within the org and like what's the most senior level community position at microsoft today oh boy that the senior most level uh that i don't know i mean there's you know it's a little hard to tell right because people's titles may not totally tell you misleading exactly yeah but probably at the director level i think there's some people like the the this community program that i'm part of the the woman who runs it is a director of that's her title so pro- mm-hmm. probably up up there I, I, we don't have i'm sure we don't have a vp of community although potentially there could be over in the marketing organization for for something you know right. also my focus is really in the engineering realm so there's actually parts of the company i don't know that well like sales and marketing i'm, I'm just not as well exactly <laughs> microsoft is a small city <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's cool yeah i'm always curious you know, we're seeing more people or more companies start to create, you know, even chief community officer roles, more so on the, the smaller startup side. But I'm, I'm curious to see, I think like when a company like Microsoft has that role, that's going to be a pretty significant moment for the world of community professionals. I agree. Yeah. I don't think there's anyone in that type of role right now, but I agree if yes. that happened. Yes. Right. Yes. You should throw your name in that. 
23 years from now, yes. 23 years from now, chief community officer. (laughs) And then you'll leave. Once you get the title, you just walk (laughs) out the door. (laughs) Mic drop. My job here is done. Okay, so really cool. You've gotten a ton of experience with all these different kinds of internal community programs. And now internal community programs, I think, are are growing, but I think are about to like explode because mm-hmm. more and more companies are going full remote now. And they're like, oh shit, we can't just rely on people serendipitously running into each other in hallways. We need to actually facilitate community amongst our staff. How the hell do we do this? And and a lot of companies are trying to figure that out today. So I think you have a lot to share with them. And just to clarify, the communities you run, they, they've been distributed, right? They're They're mostly remote. That's right. Yeah, the the last 7 years the ML community is really effectively a you know remote or virtual community. The conference that we run until 2020 was an in-person conference. So right. that was a great chance to have an anchor event where people could be in the same place at the same time. Obviously we did it online in 2020 and we're doing it online in June and I'm not quite sure what November is going to look like. Um, It'll probably be some sort of hybrid. But so a lot of what we do, though, is done over the technology and is effectively remote. I would bring people together for tutorials or sometimes if there was a topic where, you know, most of the people were in the Redmond campus and we could do something in person and get a lot of people in person. I definitely think there's a tremendous amount of value there. But also in terms of inclusion of people, it's been really interesting having everything be online and have everyone be in the same environment. And it's probably been a lot better for a lot of people in that in that respect. Yeah, it's been interesting to see how like communities that were more in person, you kind of have this two-tiered system in the community where yes. the people who only experience it remotely kind of feel left out, you know, especially in in companies where you know, if some people are in an office and some people are remote, the people who are remote will always feel left out of the conversations that happen spontaneously. Or if everyone else is in a room and you're just tuning in online, you just feel separated. But now with everyone being remote, it's kind of leveled that playing field. One thing that always struck me with in-person meetings with people dialing in is how much interesting conversation happens after the phone connection is yeah. is broken like it ends that's when the real stuff gets yeah, talked about yeah, and it's it's as people are putting their things together and walking out the door or <laughs> even sometimes no they you know any more questions or comments silence it ends right. and then someone starts talking yeah uh, so yeah we don't have that as much anymore or you hang up and then one person says well that was brutal and then you have a real conversation <laughs> right. about it <laughs> What are the pitfalls that you would point out to companies who are trying to get internal community really going amongst their their teams? Uh, what are the pitfalls that you'd point out to them or, or mistakes that you've made that you would want to help them avoid today? Pitfalls of just starting up internal communities? Yeah. I think trying to build out a big architecture of what the community is before you do anything, I think that's a big mistake. And I think a lot of people think that way. Like we have to come up, build it all out and then roll it out with this big rollout and then it'll get going. I'm much more of an advocate of like the plan, do, plan, do, plan, do. So just get something started, bring some people together, get some feedback from them on the direction you should go next as you're getting rolling. The other big thing is honestly, so at a technology focused company is a lot of times people say, hey, I want to start a community. And you go and talk to them and they, they're like, yeah, so we'll just create a Teams or a Yammer group or a distribution group or something. And I'm always thinking, I mean, that's not a community. That's just the technology that you use right. to enable the community. You are going to need to have someone who's driving that community. Personally, in my context, I think like there's very few organic, completely organic communities where, hey, someone just has a great idea and there's a bunch of people and they organically get together and somehow things happen and it keeps happening and just goes on. It's not that those don't ever happen. It's just, they're quite rare. They're the exception. They def- I think they definitely are. You need yeah. someone who's the community lead or the community manager. They could be part-time or full-time. It could be official part of their job or an unofficial part of their job, but they've taken ownership of it. But you just need someone to kind of turn the crank. And that's a lot of what what I do. I mean, honestly, a lot of 
the things we do in the community could happen organically, but they they don't. They just need someone to say, hey, you're doing really inf- interesting work on information extraction from the web. You want to share that with the community? Oh, yeah. Totally. I'd love to. Yeah. And then you get like 125 people and tons of questions. And it's not because anything I know or do. It's just saying, hey, the audience would be interested. Here's an expert. Let me put it on the calendar and tell people, you know. Totally. So that's... So I think those are a couple things, you know, like trying to plan too much before you get started and also thinking the technology will solve it for you. Absolutely. And not having someone dedicated to yes. doing this work is what I'm hearing as well. And a lot of companies for both external and internal community, but internal definitely, it just ends up being, you know, 10% of the HR department's job and they don't actually hire a dedicated community professional to facilitate those kinds of experiences. And then they wonder why it's not happening. Exactly. What has worked on like a very practical, tactical level? What kinds of things have really worked for you for driving engagement and connection and making introductions between employees? On a ta- really tactical level. So when I'm trying to connect people up, I'm trying to put myself in a mind of a, like a a win-win negotiation. You know that you can do zero-sum negotiations or win-win mm-hmm. negotiations. And right. a lot of times I'm, well, really all the time with community, I'm thinking of win-win. What's this person going to get out of it or this group and what's that group going to get out of it and articulating it for them when I connect them up and say, hey, it's just like I just talked about with this information extraction from the web, you know, the value to the community is clear. They're going to learn about a certain approach. They're going to learn some general approaches that can allow them to apply it in their job. The value for the team spending the time presenting is, one, they sort of get the credit for the work they're doing, but also there's the opportunity or possibility for teams to reach out to them and say, hey, there's an oper- we can collaborate. We can we have a technology you can use or, or we can help improve your technology. They'll never learn that unless they're putting that out in front. So, so I think just thinking through why are we doing this? And whenever someone proposes, say, a topic to me, I, I'm trying to think, what, I see why this may be valuable to you. What's the value to the community? And those could be tough conversations if I don't see the value back to the community, right? Because I don't want it to become a vanity exercise for somebody. You know, another thing that someone taught me a long time ago in terms of building connections, which I found really useful to think about is the best way to uh, build a connection with someone is ask them for a very small favor that is very easy for them to deliver on, right? Because mm-hmm. now you've put yourself in their debt and that creates this connection. You know, sometimes people would think, well, the best way is to offer to do something for somebody, mm. but then like they owe you something. <laughs> and so if you want to turn that equation around, that's a really good way of, of doing that. I really like that. Yeah. So. I'm also like fairly, although I'm an introvert, I'm fairly fearless within this particular context of just reaching out and asking, hey, you have expertise. I have a community that needs your expertise. Are you willing to share it? I mean, the worst someone can say is no, really. Right. That's something that I try to think about. Actually, I had a manager a long time ago who told me I was good at that and I I didn't realize it. And then I started thinking about it. I thought, maybe I am good at that, even though I don't think of myself as particularly outgoing or extroverted. If I have a business reason for doing it, maybe I I lose some of that shyness or uh, hesitation to reach out. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I think so much, you know, you see a great community professional doing work. They're really good at making asks but they do it in a way that it's not like a personal ask, like you're doing this for me. It's always presented as you're doing it for the community. You're doing it for others. I'm just here to facilitate. And, you know, and you make them feel special. You're like, well, you're, you're an incredible expert in this. I'm so impressed with all the work you've done. Would you be open to sharing this with the rest of the community? Exactly. Have you learned anything that's made virtual events more effective since I know you, you run the machine learning, AI and data science conference. You have 3,500 attendees for that. I'm assuming that went virtual in the last year with COVID. Is that right? It did. Yes. Yeah. And you're doing all of these classes and programs. Anything that you've learned about what makes virtual events more engaging and successful? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. The moving the conference online last, it was actually like let's say last year, we were right in the midst of all this churn. Now we sort of know what we we're doing, but we didn't, didn't really know it mm-hmm. then. Yeah. I think there's some really, I guess you would call them 
just simple stuff that I think makes virtual events run better. Like I always have my presenter sign on a half hour early, you know, check the sound and visual, make sure the screen can share. It's shocking how often there's a mic issue or someone has their monitor oriented vertically or 100% of the time they're on a Mac or something. (laughs) And it's like, always, you know, they have to reinstall or, and so sometimes I attend other events and, you know, the speaker signs on right at the start time. And then you got like five minutes of fumbling around and get started. I don't like that at all. So I have my folks sign on early, you know, takes about seven minutes usually to resolve all the issues and then we can just hang on and start on time. I also try to be a very present host in these online sessions when I'm facilitating them, like do an introduction, explain the context of the community, explain like why we want these people presenting, point out one or two things that, you know, I think about, like we just had a session from some folks at LinkedIn. And so it was sort of like typical thing with LinkedIn is like, hey, they're connected to, they're part of Microsoft, but they also have their own distinct tool set and approaches. So it's a great chance for us to learn from sort of a different way of thinking about things and just kind of highlight to the audience why this is interesting. And then when you get to like questions, you know, reading the questions out loud to the, because a lot of times if you leave it just to the presenters, they kind of just start answering a question without even reading what the question is. So the audience is lost. So sort of putting yourself in the audience shoes and just making sure those events run smoothly. So like those are very tactical in the moment. You know, communication is super important with the online events. I think with all these different events, they're all run on different platforms and different systems. And so kind of the clarity of how to attend the event, I think is, is really important. We're also building in some, say for our conference, building in Slack time in the days of the conference. So each of the sessions is 30 minutes, but there's 15 minutes between sessions. So there's nothing happening there. I mean, we're an internal event alike. And so, you know, people don't have to attend and the patterns show that people are dropping in and out of sessions. And so, you know, I don't think it's... 15 minutes in between allows people to do email or check their agenda, or if something runs a little over, they don't miss the start of the next session. Right. So those are things. I'm also like, David, I don't know if you've been looking at virtual reality, but yeah, I'm super excited about the possibilities here. We've started to use Altspace VR, which is Microsoft's product, but I'm sure there's other products out there. But the experience of being in the virtual environment being able to navigate around, like talking to someone, but hear, hearing other conversations, because the way the software works is you can you know, hear what's going on in the room. And if you turn your avatar there, you hear it better. If you turn away mm-hmm. or walk away, it's less. Being able to mingle and kind of gauge reactions through the emoticons, like I'm, I'm like just very bullish on that. I'm a little disappointed that- It's a very different experience. Yeah. I'm disappointed it's taking longer than for people to realize how cool this will be. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just learned myself like last summer, I attended part of Burning Man through Altspace and I thought, why am I not doing this in my community? <laughs> so I started doing it and it's been a little slow uptake. There's a big learning curve from the event organizer point of view, obviously. Mm-hmm. But I've also attended some really well run events. I I watched part of the inauguration in virtual reality. I've attended some talks and panels and it's just so different than the flat experience where, you know, your teams or a Zoom meeting and only one conversation can happen at a time. And I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Just having an avatar gives you a feeling of presence in this space in a way that just watching a live stream or even if your video is up, It just doesn't feel like you have ownership of space in this event. That's, I think, a subtle, but really it changes the dynamics. I think the spatial kind of works where as you get closer to someone, you hear them more, a video comes into focus and you move away and it fades out. Uh, It's a very simple thing, but it completely changes the experience that people have and makes it feel more like a real event where it's like if you join a group of three people and you participate in a conversation and you're bored of that conversation, you're just like, all right, uh, I got to go to the bathroom or I'm going to go to the bar and get a drink. And you walk away. Right. And then you like overhear another conversation and and you can kind of listen in and decide if you want to 
introduce yourself and poke your head in. So in the same way, you get this opportunity in these kinds of these VR spaces where you can move in and out of conversations in a more fluid way, as opposed to Zoom or uh, frankly, even on our own product with Bevy, it's like you're in a room with a group of people with their videos on and it's like it's more difficult to feel like you can fluidly move from space to space or conversation to conversation. Right. Like one of the just along the lines of what you were saying, one of my early events I attended in VR, I walked up to a group of three people and their avatars turned and looked at me. Yeah. And that was just such an invitation for me to introduce myself, mm-hmm. you know, versus signing onto a meeting and they're probably in the middle of a conversation and then I might have to say, hey, I'm here, you know, or yeah. something like that. And if I don't know them, that's even more awkward. Yeah. Zoom just isn't a natural way for us to communicate. It just really isn't. And the fact that you have to look at yourself the whole time on Zoom. <laughs> I'm 100% on the same page. I think there's a ton of opportunity and innovation to be had in creating these kinds of spaces that more align with what an in-person experience feels like. Yeah. All right. Well, like I said, I knew we wouldn't have enough time to dive into all the questions I have for you. And we are coming up towards the end of the interview now, which means that it is time for our rapid fire question round. Everyone's favorite part of the show. (laughs) Are you ready for the rapid fire question round, Alex? I hope so. As ready as you're going to be. All right. Let's dive in. Quick questions and your answer should be real quick, 30 seconds or less. What is your go-to pump up song? I'm not the biggest music guy, but when I was in Little League, way back when, Little League. <laughs> we Will Rock You from Queen was the song. So that still carries with me. I, I love those Queen anthem songs. Those are great. All right. So when you got to amp up your, uh, your community, you're, playing, you're still playing We Will Rock You. <laughs> love it. All right. Next question. What is your proudest ultimate Frisbee moment? So you've read my profile. Yeah. <laughs> I did my research. Certainly like there have been... You know, catching a goal to win a game, making a big defense. But but actually, I think, so a few years, I'm playing master's level ultimate now. But a few years ago, I was cut from the Seattle team. Like, and being cut from a master's level team is like probably worse than being cut for any younger level. Because it's like, okay, now your career is over. So it was the Seattle team. But then um, I was lucky enough to hook up with a, a group of a friend of mine who was also cut, he had some friends in Boulder who were forming a team. So we joined that team for like the regional national series. And it got me like reinvigorated and I really worked out hard and sort of, in a sense, revived my ultimate career. So I'm just really proud that like I took that sort of uh, disappointment and Mm. didn't give up at that point in my life and, and actually use it as a motivator to turn around and try to keep playing for many more years. I love that. That's a great story. Thanks for sharing. What's your favorite book to give as a gift to others? Well, my brother and sister would say The Power Broker by Robert Caro, because we grew up in New York and Robert Moses shaped New York. But that's a tough book to give to people because it's like 1,200 pages. That's a heavy gift. (laughs) I'm giving my nephew, when his birthday comes a little later this year, I'm giving him A Watership Down by Richard Adams. Have you read that? No. What is it? A Watership Down? Watership Down. It was written in like okay. the 70s. It's a classic, but it's about a, okay, this is going to sound weird, but it's about a, a warren of rabbits who are essentially expelled from their, their warren because it's being like developed into condos or something. So people are like ruining it. So they have to embark on this epic journey to find a new place to live. And so it's sort of about rabbits, but it's really about people. It's about <laughs> a travails and challenges. And really for me, because I reread it for the third time recently, that's why I'm giving it to my nephew, it's about leadership. Because there's a, and actually it's, I think it's really relevant to community because the leader is a rabbit named Hazel and he's not the biggest, he's not the smartest, he's not the fastest, he's not the most imaginative, but he's the one who knits it all together and draws, brings out the talent of each of the rabbits and puts it to best effect for the benefit of the group. And like, I mean, this is the third time I read it. And this is, you know, I read it when I was like 11 or something. The first time I didn't get any of that. And I don't think I got that the second time. But this time with life experience, that's my reading of the book. And it's just, I mean, 
it's great. I would read it again. It was one of those Love books, it. you know, when I put it down for the third time, I was like, I can't wait for another 15 years so I can reread this thing. <laughs> Love it. Every time you hit your 23-year mark at Microsoft, you can read the book again. <laughs> I should. <laughs> All right. Great recommendation. So you were an editor for Yale University Press and for Encarta Encyclopedia. What did being an editor teach you about community building? Huh. Well, well, so I was an editorial assistant at Yale University Press. That was right out of my out of college. I do think of my job as a community manager in my context a lot about similar to being a publisher, because a publisher understands the, the market, understands what the audience wants, and is looking for writers who can write something that will sell, you know, because the audience wants it. And that's sort of how I view my part of my job is understanding what the community wants and discovering experts and convincing them to provide that that information. I mean, the business model and everything is totally different, but the idea that, like, I'm not a data scientist, I'm not an ML engineer, but I and in the same way that a publisher is not as deep as a writer. So I think I act in the same way. So in a lot of ways, it's consistent with what my earliest job experiences were like. Love it. Have you ever worn socks with sandals? In my backyard, I've worn them, but not out in public. Okay. Well, that's a yes. Okay. Keeping a tally. Who in the world of community would you most like to take out for lunch? You know, this is someone who I, I already know, but I haven't talked to in a long time. I don't know if you know her. Do you know Allison Michaels? I don't. She worked at Yammer when Yammer was acquired by Microsoft. This was in maybe 2013 mm -hmm. or ish. And this, so this was as I was still developing my thoughts as a community professional. And I found her super inspiring about what it meant to manage communities and thinking about communities. And she didn't work at Microsoft for very long. I think she's a consultant now. It'd be really interesting to touch base with her, especially, you know, I think sometimes at some point, if I leave Microsoft after 23 years more, <laughs> maybe I'd go into consulting, you know, but I don't really know how to run that kind of business. So mm. I'd be interested in talking with her about that. I'm sure there are a lot of companies that would pay you a lot of money to do that. Consultants <laughs> are overworked right now in this space, the ones I know. Awesome. What's a go-to community engagement tactic or conversation starter that you like to use in your communities? Tell me something I should know about this. Because hmm. like, I'm not a data scientist, so I like need a very open-ended question to ask and give people a chance to tell me what they think I should know. Hmm. I also like at the end of the conversation to say, what have I not asked you about that I should know? That's a really good closer. Yep. I love that. Awesome. What's a community product that you wish existed? I wish there were like a, a true complete event management tool, everything from call for content submissions to like venue management. Because right now you have to snap together with registration and evaluation. And there's tools that get part of the way there, but I feel like we're always plugging in multiple pieces of technology to solve for it. Mm -hmm. I wish there were something that did everything. Well, have I introduced you to Bevy? <laughs> ah, that's our follow-up call. Yeah, I'll be uh, after the interview. <laughs> okay, what's the weirdest community you've ever been a part of? I think the ultimate Frisbee community is pretty weird. I mean, if you ever go to like a party tournament or a costume tournament, you're like, why is someone running around playing a game of ultimate with dressed as a cardboard refrigerator. Like <laughs> Why have they built a huge pirate ship that they carry from field to field or a spaceship? Oh yeah, there's a team in Seattle called Space Invaders. They build this UFO and during party tournaments, you can go sort of under the UFO and then they have a bar in there and you can drink in between your rounds of games and stuff. Wow. So there's, you know, Ultimate attracts some really interesting people. I love it. But I would say it's the weirdest. Ultimate's a great community though, right? Because you can go anywhere in the country or practically the world and find your, your tribe. Yeah, that's really cool. And it's the weird stuff that makes communities fun and unique. It's true. What question haven't I asked you that I should ask you? You should ask me about my Twitter, like, kind of identifier. Okay, what's your Twitter identifier? So this is a quote that I think I made up myself, but I, I can't say for sure. I might have read it somewhere a long time ago, but it's, people are the most interesting technology. And I like that because I work in this technology company and there's so many people who love technology for its own sake, but I'm really interested in people. And I think people are the most interesting technology. They're the hardest to predict. They have the most opportunity to do crazy, amazing things. So that's my... Uh, that's what you ask me about. All right. 
Next interview. <laughs> <laughs> I love that though. That's a great thought. Okay. Last question. If you were to find yourself on your deathbed and you need to condense all of your life lessons into one Twitter sized piece of advice for the rest of the world, what would that advice be? So just a small question. It's a little bit more complicated <laughs> than the socks with sandals question. <laughs> I think I would say it's really important to honor your own experiences and at the same time be able to see the world through other people's eyes. I think so much of what is happening in the world is because we don't really, so many people don't have the ability or don't want to see what the world looks like from the vantage of someone else. Mm. So I think you need to do that. I mean, you need to honor your own experience, but you need to do the other thing as well. I love that. Spoken like a true community builder. <laughs> That's what it takes. Amazing. Well, Alex, this is awesome. I think we could chat all day and we still wouldn't even scratch the surface of, of your long history and experience in the world of building community. So just super grateful for you taking the time and for you know, you pioneering a lot of this work. I think a lot of other community builders have and will continue to learn from what you've built up at Microsoft. And I'm sure a lot of internal communities are going to launch that follow your model and your lessons. So thanks for sticking with uh, the community work for so long and for coming and sharing all your lessons with me today. Well, I've really enjoyed it. And thank you so much for inviting me. I've watched you from afar. I think we might have connected a little bit on Facebook, but it's been great to talk with you and get to know you a little bit better through this. Yeah, likewise, man. Hopefully the first of many. I'll be the, the next person you want to take out to lunch. Great. Great. That would be <laughs> terrific. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time. The Masters of Community is brought to you by CMX, the world's largest network of community professionals, and Bevy, the enterprise platform powering communities for the world's leading brands. This episode was edited and produced by Finesse Media, Music was provided by Seiji Cataldo, and design was provided by Virginia DeMarco. If you enjoyed this episode, please drop us a review in iTunes. It's a huge help for helping us get this podcast in front of more people. We really, really appreciate it. And share it with your networks. The more people that learn about the power of community, the better. We have a new episode every week. So until then, thank you so much for listening and see you next time.